This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Want to make the jump to all grain brewing but don't want to spend thousands of dollars? Brewcraft USA has the answer for you. The five gallon grainfather system lets you mash, sparge, boil, and chill with its all in one design. Available exclusively where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. And with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, Get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guilt. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out to see what works and what doesn't. Alright, so now on today's episode, we'll be tipping our caps to the world of BrewTube, talking about social justice and brewing, talking through our brew year's resolutions, and heading back to the Bay Area for an explosive listener tasting, and a visit to Rancho El Sully, aka the 21st Amendment's massive new brewery complex in San Leandro, and a chat with brewmaster Sean Sully O'Sullivan. Yeah, that was really fun. And finally, we'll uh, hit you with another round of Ask Denny and Drew, where uh, we try and uh, pretend like we're smarter than we are before we close out the show with our quick tip of the week. Uh, we just want to let you know that you can uh, support us on Patreon. It's a great website that uh, lets you contribute whatever amount of money that you feel that the show is worth, or maybe even more than that. Uh, so go to a Patreon and check out Experimental Brewing. What do we do with the money? We fund this podcast. We fund our experiments. We fund the experiments of our Igors and our charity of choice. But remember, it's not the charity that we choose. It's the charity that you choose. So help us decide who's going to get a portion of the podcast proceeds. Man, talk about alliterative. <laughs> go to experimentalbrew.com and leave a suggestion in our charity topic on the front page. We'll be announcing our charity of choice in a few more episodes, so get out there, give us your thoughts, and don't forget to throw us a bone at Patreon. And we promise that the charity of choice will not be to cure the cause of Drew and Denny's empty wallets. Yeah, that's true, uh, and it won't be to fund our excursions to the bar or anything like that, so... Uh... 
So, Drew, uh, we had a, a lot of uh, feedback about our uh, last uh, episode, the, the homebrewing in decline topic. Yeah, boy, howdy. Uh, you know, was, I, I wasn't really expecting the amount of uh, stuff that we saw out there on social media and uh, people's sort of reactions and discussion. And uh, I mean, look, I think that's the first time I've ever accidentally triggered a 200 plus comment thread on Reddit. So, <laughs> Congratulations, man. <laughs> Yeah, it was like, hey, look, people actually are listening. This is awesome. Or they have opinions. So what I thought was interesting was in looking at everybody's responses was seeing the number of reports that said, hey, it looks like we're healthy here and others reporting the exact opposite. Uh, things kind of more in line with the numbers that, we, that we've seen from the AHA. Uh, all we can say is the data that we discussed is coming back from uh, the retailer and supply segments and it's showing a bit of a slowdown. Now, that doesn't mean a stoppage or destruction of the hobby. It does mean a little bit of a shakeout. Uh, But judging from the number of you who are talking about bad service and lackluster supplies at your homebrew shop or frustrating hours, uh, maybe this is exactly what the industry is seeing, a little bit of a shakeout of the less well-run establishments that uh, could kind of survive while homebrewing was on the upswing. Um, Yeah, I I think that that's... uh probably uh, very likely and i think that it kind of mirrors what we're gonna see starting to happen with breweries uh eventually too you know there's there's only so much market for both homebrew stores and breweries well yes but i personally think the market needs to be bigger and more people need to be out there enjoying beer in all of its forms well that would be wonderful yeah well i will say i i would be sad to see too much damage on the on the homebrew retail side because uh, really, most of the people who are out there running retail shops are doing it because it's a great passion of theirs, or at least it started as a great passion of theirs. It may not be after a few years of running a store. Uh, but also because right now, this is really an incredibly unprecedented time for homebrewers, just in terms of the amount of gear and ingredients and other parts that we're seeing geared towards our segment of the market and the craft brewing market. So. Uh, it would be a shame to see some of that regress. Yeah, it would. It would. So, well, what do you think, man? Shall we head down to the pub, grab a pint, and uh, talk about the beer life? I will never object to a pint of beer. All righty, we'll be right back from the experimental homebrewing pub with the beer life. We're sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of uh, everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers. Uh, I'm drinking an old Rasputin today because it's wintertime and it just seems right. What are you having, Drew? Well, you know, I just had my club's uh, annual holiday tasting at uh, the Stuffed Sandwich in San Gabriel, California. And I I think one of my favorite beers I walked away from that tasting with uh, was the Gutenkeras, but the Gutenkeras Easter. Uh, as a nice, you know, not quite seasonally appropriate, but still great beer. <laughs> so I'm having myself my spare bottle of Gunkaris Easter. Yum. Ah, yum indeed, man. I love their beers. What a great brewery. So, Well, listen, man, I'm going to let you kind of like uh, tell us what you've been thinking about in the beer world this week. All right. Well, you know, we had, uh, you know, our first couple of episodes, we talked a lot about the sort of dramatic changes in the craft brewing industry and the, the industry as a whole. 
Yeah, the homebrewing decline and big companies buying up little companies. It's all very depressing and horrible and, yeah, uh, really sort of disturbing to the hippie in me. So I figured I'd focus on two things today that, to me, really sort of reinforce the idea of what the brewing community is all about, at least in my ideal world and my brain space. And I'm going to start with a story that I actually first saw, uh, thanks to Janice Gross at the AHA, uh, about Lady Justice Brewing in Denver, Colorado. Uh, it's a co-op nonprofit brewery founded by three women, uh, Kate, Betsy, and Jen, uh, who all met through uh, volunteer efforts, uh, doing teaching work and whatnot. And they've actually successfully run an Indiegogo uh, campaign to raise money to open their nonprofit nano brewery. And what's really cool about it is that they're taking all the proceeds that aren't really paying for the ingredients in the operation of the company, and they're rolling them into uh, grants for Colorado-based charitable efforts that focus on women's issues. So, that is so cool. That is just, like, extraordinarily cool. Well, yeah, and so what I, what I love about this is it really harkens back to the sort of hippie founding roots of a lot of craft beer and homebrewing. Uh, I've always argued that uh, homebrewing only exists thanks to an odd confluence of uh, hippies and ex-military folks who wanted the beer they had while they were stationed in Europe. So, this is right back into that same vibe. I mean, like, you know, I can hear Denny going, yeah, man, you know, it's a little bit of a kind of a wavy gravy type thing. So, it's just really nice that with all the turmoil that we've been seeing recently, and like I said, last week's, or last episode's discussion of the the decline of the business that we're still seeing folks out there uh, t- kind of taking a crack at doing things with this old fashioned sense of righteousness and hey do good or spirit uh, I know it's going to be a really uh, tough road for those uh, women to run their business as a nonprofit uh, charity but I really do wish them all the luck in the world because I think it's an awesome idea it's a great and interesting model and I really hope they can pull it off and serve as an example to uh, to other people you know um Let's face it, uh, selflessness like that deserves to be known about and rewarded. Yeah, well, and you think about it, it fits in perfectly with a good portion of the story that we tell ourselves about craft beer, right? Part of the reason that you go and you support your local brewery or your local homebrew shop is because there's a, a face that you recognize, a name that you can attach to a company and their products, as opposed to, you know, a 12-ounce bo- brown bottle of faceless suds. Uh, at least this is kind of the story that gets told. And to me, this is really sort of an extension of that same idea because now not only do you have a face, but you also have a cause attached to it. Right, right. There's some sad news this week in the beer world too, right? Yeah, so one thing I hadn't really ever delved into before the last couple of weeks is this whole community that exists out there online. That, uh, they call themselves the BrewTube community. And it's literally a bunch of homebrewers from around the world who... Uh, post videos regularly to uh, YouTube. They have their uh, Homebrew Wednesday, where you'll see a lot of new videos appear uh, on YouTube. And uh, late in November, the, the community lost uh, kind of one of their big cogs, a man by the name of Paul Wicksteed of uh, New Zealand. Uh, Paul was actually featured on the HA website uh, back in 2011, but since then he's published hundreds of videos to YouTube. Uh, under his uh, username of Time for Another One, and that's uh, capital Time, uh, the numeral four, another, and the numeral one. Uh, and so he was really responsible for dropping, like I said, a hundred plus videos on YouTube, 
regular, uh, very involved, uh, dropping a lot of knowledge about electric brewing out there. And so you really should go take a look at this community that, uh, frankly, I had no real inkling existed until this happened. Uh, but the community right now, they're doing a couple of things I think are kind of cool. Uh, they've come together, a bunch of the, the different folks involved have recorded tribute videos uh, to Paul. Uh, they are organizing worldwide uh, memorial brews of two of his uh, favorite recipes, his uh, Supercharger American Pale Ale and his uh, Peculiar One Old Ale. Uh, and in addition, they're also raising money for helping the family out with their expenses because Paul's death was uh, rather unexpected. So to me, I'm just going to take this as another sign of kind of the strength of the beer community, the things that, that I really love about our beer community uh, and our homebrew community. So by all means, go check out those videos. Uh, you know, they're just legion. You can probably spend hours upon hours upon days upon months, get fired from your job and still not be done with all the brew tube videos that are out there. So uh, in other words, I think it's time that we raise a toast to uh, Mr. Wicksteed. So to Paul, uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge. And it's a shame that the community has lost you. I agree, man. Uh, to you, Paul. Okay, well, we're going to uh, finish sucking down our beers here and uh, get out of here, and we'll be talking about our brew year's resolutions coming up in a minute. Welcome back to the Experimental Brewing Lab here in Casa Verde in Black Tie, Oregon. Uh, before we get started <laughs> on our on our Brewers resolutions, I do want to just uh, stop in real quick and uh, check up. Uh, last week we announced our first ever experiment that we're doing with the group, uh, which is our experiment comparing White Labs 001 to Y Yeast 1056. Uh, right now we have. I don't know, about 10 brewers in the Igor program who are actively engaged in doing this. This episode will drop on December 23rd, and we will be presenting the results from that experiment in our second episode of January. Remember, again, our schedule is going to be, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, in our first episode of the month, we will announce an experiment, and in our second episode of the month, we will announce the results of a previous experiment. All that information will be both available on the podcast and online at experimentalbrew.com. Again, first the first episode of the month, we'll be announcing an experiment. We've got a couple of great hop experiments, it looks like, uh, being ginned up by the community right now. So expect next month, it's going to be something hoppy for January. And then uh, around the second episode of January, we'll be announcing our results from our yeast experiment. And we'll be keeping that pattern from going forward. Obviously, this month, we don't have any experiment results to announce this week. So, uh, wait for next January. So, it's Christmas time. What'd you get me? Uh, a big lump of coal so you can stay warm out there in the middle of the woods. Uh, you know, I could use that. Uh, although, I've got a huge wood pile. So <laughs> There you go. All right. Well, so, hey, Christmas is around the corner. Uh, if you're listening to this as we drop this episode, you've got two more days to, uh, well, no, really about a day and a half in order to get all your gifts. Uh, and then it's time to have fun with the family and open up some presents. 
But hot on its heels is the start of another arbitrary determined astronomical cycle involving Earth and the Sun. And as is usually the case with this time of year, everyone's making promises of things they're going to try and change, hopefully for the better in the coming year. And I just want, I just want to say right now, Drew made me make these resolutions. Normally, I don't do it because I know I'm not going to keep them, and I don't want to feel worse about myself than I already do. But, uh, I, yeah, I've got some in there, too. Well, see, that's the problem there. You're setting yourself up for failure. You have to think positive, and not positive like, I'm positive I'm not going to do these. Jeez. Okay, okay. Always okay, with man. The, uh, always positive, with the negative positive. vibes, Moriarty. Always positive, with the negative positive, vibes. Positive. I'm thinking positive now. All right. Uh, okay, so you start. What's yours? All right, so uh, let's just uh, do this in the good old-fashioned back and forth. So I'm going to start with the most obvious one. Uh, over the last year, or really over the last two years, I've been busy writing a couple of books with some foolish uh, butthead. Uh, yeah, and, me too. Imagine that. Yeah, so I haven't had a lot of time to do as much brewing as I used to. I used to brew ooh, twice a month, and now I'm, I'm lucky if I see twice a quarter. So... I went out the other day to go do the inventory in my in my garage brewery, and I realized that I have sitting there 250 pounds of a domestic two-row, 215 pounds of Maris Otter, and over 100 pounds of Pilsner malt sitting in my garage, uh, all in my bulk storage bins. And that really just tells me, hey, uh, you need to get brewing. So uh, my number one resolution for the coming year, more brewing. Yep, and I have to admit that uh, I'm in a similar situation uh, with a similar resolution. Uh, I have probably darn darn close to a thousand pounds of grain sitting there uh, waiting for me to brew. Uh, My problem is that I just cannot get my life organized and plan ahead and make time. So, So my real resolution is to get to aggregate my fecal matter, as they say and uh, get my life organized so that uh, I can actually brew more and maybe even make a schedule I can stick to. See, now I'd like to point out, I have a full-time job. You're retired. You have no excuse. (laughs) I'm retired until, uh, well, never mind. Let's not go there. Uh, (laughs) Let's just say I need to get more organized so that I can have more time to brew. Well, there you go. All right. So my second one is I uh, I need to brew more session beers. So uh, if you've been tracking me at all on Facebook, you might have noticed that I've made some fairly substantial, substantial weighty changes in my life over the past year. Boy, uh, has he ever. Yeah, so I think the grand total as of today is 105 pounds down, uh, and part of that was in terms of controlling the beer. Uh, so part of what this means is I still really love beer and I still drink beer, but you know I can't have this Gutenkaris Easter that I've been having all the time, and so I really need to kind of get back into the swing of doing more session beers. So that's that's my big one: more innovation in the sessionable market. There are a lot of uh, sessionable beers out there, but I think the problem is they usually get a short shrift because people think they're boring. So now I think to do a service to the community, I'm going to have to turn my incredible oddity towards the session. Yeah, and I think that that's a great idea, and I'll uh, I'll give you a hand because uh, after three test batches of my American Mild, I kind of uh, set that aside to do other things, and I fully intend to get uh, back to working on that recipe. So uh, maybe between the two of us, we can come up with something good. There you go. We're going to revolutionize it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can try. Uh, 
So my next resolution is to try more new ingredients, and by that I don't mean crap like Drew's Fluffernutter beer. I'm talking about uh, regular, normal, old ingredients. A good example is Red X Malt. Red X Malt has been around for a couple of years at least now. Lots of people are using it, getting lots of great reports on it. Have I tried it yet? No, I haven't, because I'm not organized enough. So my general resolution is to try more new ingredients to expand my brewing um, and my specific pledge to all of you out there is I will make a 100% Red X beer. Well, so for those of us who aren't uh, plugged into internet forums all day, uh, who makes Red X and what's special about it? Well, that's a good question. Is it, is it Wireman? Is it MFB? I can't, I don't even remember who makes it. I'd have to go look to find out. Uh, it Apparently, if you use it as 100% of your grist in a beer in the mid-50s gravity range, you will turn out with a very red beer with a really wonderful malt flavor to it. That's the wrap. I'm going to try it and find out for myself. All right. And for everybody who's curious, a quick search of the internet shows me that Red X is from Best Malls. Ah, Best. Why, that's my favorite maltster for Continental Malts, so... And there yet you, you can't. And yet you can't be bothered to remember that they made Red X. You are such a horrible fan. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I, I, I'm not like a like a fanboy of the maltster. I'm a fanboy of the products. And once I try the product, I will remember it. Uh, and the reason I'm this whole thing came about is I was in my uh, local homebrew shop the other day, and he had a big bin of it. And I said, you know, this is something I need to do. So, anyway, I'm sure that none of you out there really care about that uh drew what's your next resolution all right number three which actually ties into your smart ass remark that you just made uh number three for me is to promote the heck out of things that aren't so shocking to people so uh in your hallelujah past, hallelujah uh, now no by the way i didn't say i'm going to stop doing things to shock people because i really want to test your heart medication oh, uh God. but no, I mean, before uh, before I became known for things like Saison Guacamole or uh, last year's Clam Chowder Saison, uh, I was known for doing a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of interesting things that were fairly normal. Like, I've been a big promoter of Mild for a very, very long time. I love the damn style, and I, was, I really want to see it come back. And so I used to push and promote things like that. And part of the problem is uh, you don't get a lot of response out of that. But, uh, well, you know what? Who needs response? I just want to make sure the ideas are out there. So I'm going to try and remind people that, you know what, I'm not just all about throwing uh, strange things into beer. Boy, would I love that, man. I would love for you to brew a beer that I could actually drink and uh, make, a, make a real comment other than, my, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, you liked the Clam Chowder Saison, so shut it. I thought it was a very successful experiment. And that brings us to my next resolution, which ties right in, which is to try not to get so grossed out by Drew's beer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, clam chowder, it's like, I can, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's my own personal taste preferences, but when you said a fluffernutter beer, I threw up a little in my mouth, you know? Um, I I think you need to go talk to your doctor because uh, it seems like a lot of times when we talk about beer ideas, you end up throwing up in your mouth. I I think you might have gastrointestinal issues. uh, Yeah, well, then that's, that's, never mind. We're not going there either. (laughs) Anyway, I promise that uh, I will not get so grossed out by Drew's beers and I will try and be supportive of his weird ideas. Oh, thank you, buddy. 
You're welcome. All right. Uh, for me, uh, I think the next two are kind of back to back, so I'm just going to combine them together. Uh, I need to get back to better note taking. Uh, when uh, when I first started brewing, I was obsessive about my notes, uh, much in the vein that Denny is. Uh, but over time, and as I've just learned my system, and as I've learned other things, uh, my notes have become slightly more lackadaisical. So I pledge to myself and the universe at large that this year I will be better about note taking. And I'll also be better about not letting things get stacked up in the brewery. Right now, I think I have about 20 kegs that need to be finished cleaning and be broken down and all that sort of fun stuff. And and the problem is that this little bit right here ties back into part of the problem of more getting more brewing done. Because whenever I walk into the brewery and I see this giant pile of stainless steel that needs maintenance, it just sort of sucks all the energy right out of the room and takes the wind out of my brewing sails. So, yeah, I need to get better about doing that so I can actually uh, keep brewing. Yeah, that would help. That would help. So my next one is uh, not related at all to brewing, but my next resolution is to get my damn chicken coop built. Uh, We had a new fence put up here at uh, uh, Casa Rye IPA uh, last summer, and uh, we fenced off a portion of the area for chickens, and we are still not getting the chicken coop built. There are a number of reasons for that, but ultimately it comes down to me. So I guarantee you I will get my chicken coop built. I will have fresh eggs, and I will feel better about myself because I've done that. Hmm. Fresh eggshell beer. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) I should have known it would set him off. Yeah, well, hey, it's better than making a uh, chicken poop beer. (laughs) That's very true. All right. And then uh, my last uh, re- brew year's resolution for the year is also not beer-related, uh, although uh, maybe partially. Uh, I have um, suffered for years uh, from a condition uh, that's both awkward and off-putting and has affected a great many of my personal relationships. Uh, and it's been a real struggle for me over uh, over time. And that problem... I know there are other listeners out there who are suffering from this, and I, I want you to... I'm going to talk about it because I want you to know that you're not alone. Uh, and that problem is, I am a smartass. <laughs> I, have, I have been a smartass since I was born. Uh, it's reflexive. I almost can't help it. Uh and like I said, it's had a real impact on my personal relationships over the years. So my non-brewing brew resolution for the year is I'm going to make an honest attempt to be more sincere. It's going to be hard. Wow. Uh, I, you know, I think losing 105 pounds was, a, was scads and loads easier than this particular promise. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to be more sincere. I wish I could believe that. <laughs> I do too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And my final one is that I am going to spend more time practicing my instruments. Uh, this room that I'm sitting in here while I'm recording is uh, full of electric and acoustic guitars and basses and ukuleles and keyboards and stuff like that. And uh, most of the time I just kind of walk in and look at them and go, huh, 
yeah, that's pretty nice. So, so this year I uh, intend to actually start practicing on all of these instruments more so that uh, the next time I record a little ditty for the show here, it will not be quite as disgusting as the previous one. Now, let me ask, does this also mean, do you have like some sort of moratorium on buying new instruments until you've at least played all the instruments you have? Yes, and it's called my wife. Uh, that's a good moratorium. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here, and there must be, in this room right now, there oh, geez, probably close to 15 different instruments, and uh, yeah, I, I, I got to make use of these before I buy any more, so. So those are our Brew Year's resolutions. Uh, let us hear yours. Send them in to podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and let us know what your plans are, whether it relates to beer, chicken coops, musical instruments, or Drew being a wise guy. Yeah, and don't uh, don't forget, you know, as Denny pointed out earlier, you know, uh, resolutions are usually treated as a reason to fail. So, let's make sure that we put this into the calendar for next year so we can come back and see just exactly how Denny and, uh, Denny and I have done. And if you send in your suggestions, maybe we'll see how well you've done too. Oh, God. I'm scared. I'm scared. We're going to be back in just a minute. Uh, we'll be talking more about our trip to the Bay Area and have some interviews for you. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in. So uh, thanks to our sponsor, Craftmeister, Drew and I just visited the Bay Area, and we took advantage of the travel to uh, to meet with some interesting people there uh, in the beer world, and uh, in- including some home brewers uh, that we met. While we were at one of the more beer stores in the San Francisco area, we were greeted by a listener named Alex who had brought in a beer for us to taste that turned out to be kind of explosive. The best part is that I got to see Drew run for his life, which was a truly awe-inspiring sight. Yes, but I would like to note, I held on to the recorder the whole time. He did, and you guys will hear that uh, in, in this recording. Uh, there's some kind of strange noises there. Don't let it tear you, because it's uh, an interesting interview. All right, so uh, Denny, uh, Denny and I, are, we're here at uh, Boar Beer down in Los Altos, and... Uh, as things happen whenever we're going around places, people have beer. Imagine. So, yeah, imagine that. So we're going to uh, actually try something new for the podcast, and we're going to taste a beer uh, semi-live for you guys. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, Sal. Sure. My name's Alex Logis. Uh, been homebrewing for about two years, so I'm pretty new to the sport, but uh, California native. So I can't say much else about myself other than, you know, I brought a kombucha beer here today. Oh, interesting. All right, nice. Interesting. So we're going, we're going experimental right off the bat for our first uh, ever live tasting. That's right. <laughs> now we just need an opener. What? I got one in my pocket. I was going to say, three homebrewers staying around. Somebody's got a bottle of You know, right, well, on. I would normally have one on my pocket knife, but since I flew down here... Uh... Uh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, my gosh. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, there's been a slight technical error. The recorder has been hit. Man down, man down. I don't think this is uh, this, uh, my kombucha beer at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, this one kind of exploded everywhere. And Alex has been holding on to this like, uh, uh, like a man possessed with a hand grenade. Oh, baby. Uh, we're now rapidly following out the back of the uh, brew shop. And I think we are actually painting 
Los Altos with beer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I uh, mislabeled this beer. All right. It's not the kombucha beer at all because the kombucha beer is undercarbonated, so I fucked up. All right, so now if this oh, isn't guys. if this is <laughs> if this isn't the kombucha beer, then what, uh, what uh, fresh hell do we have in yeah, front of us? I'm pretty sure it's a double IPA. Yeah, it's a very gassy double IPA. Yes, yeah, very gassy. All right, let's give this a, give let's, it a shot anyway. Yeah, and let let no man say we will not try a beer. <laughs> All right, so uh, just test there. It's okay, right. let's uh, tell us a little bit about the double IPA. So this was uh, an experiment, actually, for me to learn about um, uh, whirlpool hopping and trying to get, you know, hop flavor out of the hops. Um, it's a few months old, so there's less aroma than was initially present, but uh, it's got a lot of Simcoe, Citra, um, Cascade, and uh, Nelson Savant okay. in, in the whirlpool. Right. And that's, the, that's definitely that, in that grapey character. You, you so taste now, that? Yeah. Now, why do we think this is uh, such an explosive double IPA? Well, I think I've, I've been trying to dial in my carbonation. And <laughs> I think... I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah, definitely working on it. And, and I thought that I was just putting in the right, wrong amount of priming sugar. But I think it's actually filtration. Um, there's a little bit of trube in the bottom of this batch mm -hmm. uh, in, in every bottle. And so I, th I think that's providing nucleation sites, even though it's not over-carbonated, for it just well, to express itself instantly once the bottle gets open. Well, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, the carbonation in it is brisk. Uh -huh. So we do we do still have that going on here. But uh, yeah, I mean, you may be right, because I mean, I don't get any sort of infection or I, anything except like that. A, except a, I've never seen that happen before. Oh. You know, it's it's a good theory, and there's a first time for everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, no, yeah, and uh, by the way, folks uh, listening, this bottle really did kind of uh, paint everywhere. Ceiling. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I would not want to be the cleaner at the uh, more beer in Los Altos tonight. <laughs> I think I accidentally spritzed Denny in the face. Yeah, enough. that's true. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be well, wearing this beer for the rest well, of the day. Denny got hit. The recorder got hit. Everything's uh, okay. A uh, reminder to self, buy a waterproof casing for the uh, recorder before uh, more beer tastings. And, and, and face masks, <laughs> I think. Like, welding face masks would be a good thing. No, now, and you said this is a couple months old now? It is, yeah. I think it's about uh, four months old. Really? I, I mean, it's still got, I mean, it's still got a nice hop character in terms of the flavor. Uh, I'm not getting as much in terms of the aroma. Right. And I think that's just natural because of the age. But Yeah. I tried to keep the bitterness low, too, and mm -hmm. focus more on the flavor and aroma. I've noticed uh, it didn't have... Do you notice a spice with the hops? It, it didn't have that before, but now I, I find it's kind of... There's well, a little bit of that coming through in the aftertaste. Yeah, a little, little cinnamon type thing, which to me usually says if it's not a Belgian yeast in here, then no. something else is uh, coming in, which I, would also go with the carbonation. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that you have some sort of infection in there. You think well, I do? Yeah. Just minor. Yeah. Not, uh, not anything. That, nothing, nothing has taken over. Uh, I think what you need to do is see if this kind of reaction gets more pronounced over the next coming months. Well, yeah, how many more of these do you have? It was like that instantly after really? kind of the priming period, after two weeks. And if you look okay, in the bottom, so, there's always like so a little the, bit of the, th the three most common causes that I see of, of a gusher like that yeah. are an infection, over priming or bottling before fermentation was complete. Yep. 
Now, what right. was what was the gravity when you bottled this? I'd have to check my notes. Okay. No, not sure. You don't you don't recall it seeming unnaturally high or anything like that? No, and I usually make sure to wait until gravity's stable. Mm -hmm. Right, do a couple subsequent gravity readings and make sure it's remains stable. Well, I, all I can say then is we can conclude that it's inconclusive. There's there something about the flavor that makes you think uh, well, it could be infected. It's just that uh, that cinnamon spicy phenol on the finish. And, and huh. Yeah, and the fact that I'm. But I'm not getting as much hot flavor as I would expect from what you described. Mm -hmm. Kind of makes me feel like maybe it's been like eaten up by some bugs. Yeah, but I mean, again, I think you know what is still there in the beer. Yeah. It shows exactly you know like you hit what you were going for in terms of you know restrained bitterness, a lot of hot flavor, and and sort of a build up towards hop aroma. Um, but obviously, over time, the hop aroma has gone down, and possibly also due to some other material. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a, you're on the right track for, for what it is that you want. Uh, although, uh, next time, I think probably maybe a little less uh, vigorous uh, bottling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I would, I would say brew this recipe again <laughs> and, and see, see what happens. See if you can find out what happened this time uh, and just really control your process tightly the next time and see what happens. Because I think, I, I'm with Drew, I think that you have the basics of a really great beer here. There you go. All right, so I think this has been our uh, first episode of, uh, or first segment of Tasting the Homebrew. Thanks, Alex. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Thanks. That was fun. <laughs> In our last episode, we talked to Jay Goodwin of the Rare Barrel. This time, while we were in San Francisco, we're going to bring you another brewer, uh, a little man by the name of Sean Sully O'Sullivan, uh, who just opened up this massive new playground that we we took to calling Rancho El Sully. Uh, he has all the toys. Oh, it, it, no, it's it's not all the toys. It's all the toys. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, everything from computer-controlled uh, massive German brewing systems with offset calandrias, uh, ground-level hop tanks that are designed to be pressurized and blown up into giant fermenters, a superb canning line, and a tasting room that's made of walls of cans. Uh, the man really has built himself sort of this glorious location, and it's really strange to think it all started from this wee little brew pub located uh, just a few blocks away from a ballpark. So let's go ahead and uh, let's go hear what Sully has to say about being a rock and roll brewer in the Bay Area and being in a former Kellogg's factory. All right, so hey everybody, we are at the 21st Amendment Brewery, the actual production brewery over in San Leandro, and I'm sitting here in the production office with Denny and Sully. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, so hey, uh, we've been enjoying a, a, a nice little tour of the facility, plus uh, I think when I had a toaster pastry, Denny. I had the Session IPA. There you down go. Earth. Yep, down, down to Earth. Down to Earth. And I just want to say, because everybody knows how I feel about Session IPAs, it was damn good. I didn't have to pay to tell, tell you that either, did I? Well, not that we're disclosing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, so Sully, real quick, uh, introduce yourself to our audience. I'm sure they know who you are. Yeah, I'm uh, Sean O'Sullivan. I'm the brewmaster and co-founder of the 21st Amendment Brewery. Uh, we've got facilities in San Francisco. We've got our new space here in San Leandro, where we're sitting right now, like you said. Uh, we also do some brewing out in Cold Spring, Minnesota. and. Uh, this craft beer movement is unbelievable right now. I mean, this is, uh, it's crazy times. 
No, it, yeah, you started with a, a wee little tea tiny brew pub. Yeah, we we start with a little twelve barrel brewery in the in San Francisco, literally making about nine hundred and fifty barrels a year. Now we've got you know tanks out here where the capacity could be, you know, we could get to that capacity in like one day. <laughs> so it, you know, if you would have told me fifteen years ago that I would have been that I would have opened a brewery with a hundred barrel brew house and up two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand barrels of capacity. I would have kicked you in the shins and just walked out of the room because, well, and, and most importantly, the toys, the, yeah. all the toys. Uh, all, yeah, the toys are amazing. The toys are expensive toys, and they sometimes don't want to play with you, <laughs> and so they need to be tended to. And uh, but yeah, the, it's been a lot of fun. Well, they're, they're all German and temperamental, right? Yeah, they're German. Yeah, they're very they're German and very exact. Hang on a sec. I'm gonna try putting up there. All right. Okay. All right, and so as a uh, sort of our warm-up question here to you, Sully, and the non-softball question, what's your uh, favorite curse word? Uh, my favorite curse word would have to be, I think it's f Okay, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Two for two. Yeah. yeah we're, doing, we're doing well, but yeah, my nuns would still wash out your mouth. So Yeah, actually, but I have a 12-year-old son, the boy if anybody follows me on social media. Uh, and so I'm actually really good about, you know, when you have a, when you have a kid, you have to kind of, you got to temper your, your, your language, so. You're trying to present the, the world that you want the kid to see, not the world that actually is. Yeah, and he also gets freaked out when he does. He's like, what, dad? Yeah, sorry, I'll go do something else now. <laughs> or go push with him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, real quick, uh, how did you get started in the beer world? And, uh, what, like, what's the first real beer memory that you have of good beer? Well, I mean, I have had several jobs. So, I lived in Southern California in my 20s after I graduated from Ooh. UCLA. Um, I was a political science major, uh, actually, graduated as a psychology major. Clearly, I was struggling with what to do, but I was, you know, maintaining that liberal arts degree passion that, you know, I just went in with. Uh, I was really into photography. I wanted to be a photographer. That's what I, and I actually was a photographer for a while. I shot for a local uh, weekly in Los Angeles, did a lot of punk rock club photography as well as political stuff. I uh, worked at CNN as a producer for a little bit, worked at a community darkroom in Santa Monica, uh, but then couldn't really pay the bills, so I ended up working at this law firm as a paralegal in Los Angeles. Uh, thought I was going to go to law school or business school, start homebrewing my, you know, mid to late 20s, was like, oh my god, we can make alcohol and beer and this tastes great. And there wasn't really a huge, big craft brew scene in Southern California back then. Nope. I mean, the beer that we were drinking was Anchor Steam and uh, Pete's Wicked Ale and Red Hook ESB. I mean, I remember enjoying Red Hook ESB. I thought it was like the most amazing thing. That was probably one of my first brew, uh, craft beers along with Sierra and uh, Pete's. And then, uh, so I decided, screw it, I don't want to go the traditional route of getting a, going to college and uh, graduate school. So pulled up stakes, moved to Northern California when I was about 29 and got a job at Triple Rock Brewery uh, as an assistant brewer, making six twenty an hour. Also had a part-time job to pay the bills. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, so those were my like, you know, uh, really early memories of getting involved in craft beer. Really the whole arc started at Triple Rock though. I mean, I had a, the assistant brewer at the time, Sean Donnelly told me, you know, people are gonna know this, they know this place. Triple Rock was well known, it was like the third might have been the third uh, brew pub to open in the state of California when the law changed. And so um, he said that to me, and it's true. I mean, I you know, was able to get jobs and kind of move my career along and eventually you know, met my business partner and, 
um, wrote a business plan and opened up our place. It was that easy, too. And the, and the, and the business plan never had any of this vision in your head? No, it did not at all. I mean, really, it was just about opening the single spot. You know, my Nico Freccia was, you know, a theater major living in Los Angeles, which means he was, you know, his life was, you know, dedicated to uh, working in restaurants and managing restaurants. Uh, and so we, uh, uh, he had that background and we met me, I, he was writing for the Beer Celebrator magazine and, uh, and we did a tour at Triple Rock and then we later met at UC Davis taking uh, beer courses there. And so I was the brewer and he was the restaurant guy and that's all we were going to do was just really that one, you know, little spot. and. And then it went forward, you know, we started canning our beer in a little two-head cast brewing system uh, filler in 2005 and kicking out a whopping 15 cases an hour with our two most popular beers, watermelon, wheat, and IPA. And, um, and then people really caught on, so we decided to take it to the next level and we didn't have the money to build a new brewery, nor did we want to because we were shy about money. But Pete Slosberg got in our ear about contract brewing or what we call partner brewing because we really kind of own the brewery when we're doing it. It's not a brute, forget it kind of attitude. Um, and our plan was to drop a, you know, to buy a larger canning filler and drop into a local uh, regional brewery like Firestone Walker or Gordon Beerish or Sudenberg and kind of went down that path, but it didn't, you know, materialize. So we started looking in the Midwest and found a place out in Cold Spring, Minnesota. And that's, we started brewing there in 2008 and did a brew a thousand barrels of beer and then um, ran out of capacity and had the build a new brewery, that's why we're here. That was a long story. Okay. I can start over again if you want. I can, I can do the whole thing in French too if you want me to. French, Spanish, and if you're, if you're able to, German. No, um, Sorry, what, I talked what, my mouth up there. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's interesting because it seems like you guys, for a tiny little brew pub, you've been on the forefront of a couple of things that now seem to be relatively standard in the craft beer world. One is the idea of partner brewing. Like, a, a, I remember when you guys started that, it was still very much looked down on, and now we're seeing a lot of places do that. Yep. And then also, definitely way ahead on the curve on the canning thing. Yep, absolutely. So, I and mean, uh, congratulations on that little bit of foresight. Thank you. I mean, it was interesting because uh, the partner brewing thing, contract brewing, kind of like it was like a four letter word. Like in the late 90s, there was a lot of bad beer that was out there. I'd still say it's a four-letter word amongst like a hardcore enthusiasts. Hardcore enthusiasts, yes, you're, you're absolutely. But you know, Joe, average beer drinker, doesn't really know or I don't really think care about it. I mean, um, and so we never hid from it. We always told people what we were doing: we're contract brewing or partner brewing. You know, in Cold Spring, we were out there. I mean, I fly a lot. You know, if you read any of the Instagram feed, but, you know, if you're not looking at my food or my son, it's an airplane. Um, so, uh, you know, and uh, we people out there, we work really closely with them. And I think it's really paid off. I mean, the first when we first started brewing there in 2008, we were brewing on an old lager system, two vessel system, and it was there was some questionable beer. Well, uh, 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 challenging beer that well, went out. I remember you guys had uh, you had sort of the inevitable growing pains of getting uh, yeah. an old school lager, hey, you know, we're making corn beer they had brewery to do it. They had never dry hopped a beer before. We did we were trying we had to figure out how to dry hop beer. And that was, you know, uh, really it was challenging for them. And you know, and like you said, it was industrial strength Midwestern lagers. <laughs> and so to come out there with watermelon and hops you know, you know, crazy amounts of hops and also all the weird ingredients like we put in monk's blood with spices and do all this, all this other stuff. It was, 
is definitely, uh, they're like, oh, oh, we don't know if we can do that, but we'll try, eh? <laughs> I think that was Midwestern and Canadian there. <laughs> it was like, I think we crossed the maple syrup boundary there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, one of my favorite questions, just for the, uh, the fact of making people stop and think, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Uh, my brewing philosophy, oh, omitting the root word, I think you said, okay. My, all right, take two. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll clean this up in post, right? Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> my, uh, my brewing philosophy is, I think it's really important to adhere to certain style guidelines, and, uh, but at the same time to have fun within that. Um, I don't think beers should be one-dimensional. I think that, for instance, when you have an IPA, it should not be bitter water all the way through. It should be well constructed with malt. It should have the hops. Uh, the bitterness can actually be pulled back because your uh, perception of an IPA, I'm using this as an example, um, you don't have to hit people over the head with the bitterness. You can almost like suggest it in a lot of ways. But really, every beer has to finish dry. It needs to finish dry. Um, I don't like a lot of residual sweetness, even though I do like a little bit of uh, what's happening I think right now in the industry is because the DP of a lot of pale malt is so high that people are fighting with finishing gravities. Uh, we're actually kind of demanding a, high, a lower DP because we um, want the beers to finish in a higher range to create more mouthfeel. Not that we're leaving any sort of residual sweetness that you know perceived as what we see as sweetness, but those non-fermentables that are going to leave the gravity higher in the end. And so for everybody on the, who's listening and doesn't understand DP, uh, Sully is talking about diastatic power, which is basically the enzyme strength of the malt. Exactly. That, to basically produce very short-chain sugars, which are easily fermentable. Now, I was going to say, one of the things I've noticed is both with uh, Denny's uh, experience with the Back to Earth uh, session IP. Down to Earth. Or Down to Earth. Yeah, Actually, that's going to be the name of the next beer. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, royalty check. All right. So, down, <laughs> down to Earth session IP, which he liked because it did have that residual malt, uh, maltiness. And then also with the toaster pastry, which I just had, which is your, your sort of commemorative India red ale ish thing because we're here in the middle of a Kellogg's factory. Yep. Uh, both of those had an incredible malt complexity to them and a nice malt finish, but really one of the points that I think a lot of people miss out on because people are so used to the idea of like so much crystal malt is there's a difference between malt and sweetness. Exactly. And so the beers that you have are dry, but they still have a nice maltiness to them. And you hit the, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I think that's, I mean, look at classic West Coast brewing, like, uh, going back to the IPA recipe is the omission of crystal malt. I mean, our uh, brew fair dye IPA is just pale malt, Munich malt, and a really light Karastan, 15L. It's not even really a crystal, I don't think. Um, and just a little bit of, uh, and and that, you know, I think when you when you put crystal malt in, like you're, what you were, you were talking about, you end up having a fight in your mouth, you know, essentially over flavor. You have to compensate that residual sweetness that's in the malt from too much crystal malt with more hot bitterness. And you end up having this, like, you know, cloudy, you know, murky moment where you're like, what am I, and you, you don't even want to drink it anywhere. I mean, we, my goal, I think, of any, any brewer is that I want you to have a beer and another beer and another beer and another beer and another beer and if the beer is too sweet in the finish then you don't want to have that second or third beer 
So you've heard it here, folks. Sully wants to encourage repeat drinking. <laughs> Responsible repeat drinking. <laughs> well, but I mean, I think you know part of what RRD. You're <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of what you're describing is what is what I think of as that um, sort of flavor leveling that I always talk about. Hey, you know, the beer just tastes brown. Yeah. And it tastes like it's at war with itself. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, even though there was a lot of, there's a lot of Caram Munich. There's one of my favorite malts in the toaster pastry, the India Red Ale you're talking about, uh, the 7080 Baird Crystal that I love. That was one. It's a malt that's in uh, Red Rock, a Triple Rock, one of the first brews I ever brewed. I uh, love that beer. Um, but there's, you know, and there's some biscuit malt in there. But there isn't like a lot of crystal malt. It's like there is a, it's it's a little home brewery of a recipe. I mean, there's like five or six malts in there. You well, know, I was gonna say, you, you also talked about like you homebrewed that recipe yeah. first, and then kind of scaled up as a super secret ninja project. Yeah, yeah. Toaster pastry for what we're talking about is uh, was our homage to the Kellogg plant that we're sitting in right now. So where our brewery is is in a former Kellogg's plant where they made cereals and t and, and pop tarts. We couldn't call a beer. Pop tart because we'd be sued. So we're calling it uh, toaster pastry, which is the neutral, you know, term. Uh, and so I was home brewing recipe. Knew that we were going to brew this beer here. So uh, last year and a half ago, I started doing home brew versions of this. I still home brew. Um, a lot of the recipes that we have here started off as home brews. So I did a couple versions of that, and then brewed a couple versions at our pub in San Francisco. And the name was always different because I didn't want to use this name yet. I wanted this to come out of the can. This is the first new beer coming out of the brewery, um, and so you know it was called you know uh, blah 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 IPA and ales for ALS beer. And it was you know it was just sort of this clandestine ninja project, like you said, and. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, then we unleashed it on the world as toaster pastry in this 19.2 ounce can, and you know the plug is, is that it tastes like the whole. The, the direction was, what would it be like to drink a pop tart? You know, to bite into a pop tart. So that biscuit malt really helps out with the crust, and then all that we have a lot of late hopping, which is really popular right now. The last half hour boil, there's like five or six additions, and there's a, there's like two pounds per barrel of dry hopping. And it's just, you know, it has this raspberry jammy kind of quality yeah. to it. Yeah, it's it's impressively fruity, nicely bitter, and yeah, you've got that you've got that wonderful sort of biscuit type flavor in there. Yeah. So it's really it's really well done. Thank you. And I think the lesson, by the way, for everybody to take away is you can own a, a hundred barrel brewery and still be homebrewing. So yeah. uh, keep brewing, and then you'll <laughs> have your own hundred barrel brewery. Um, all right. So next question is. Uh, which brew do you find yourself longing to drink? Which brew do I find myself longing to drink? Um, you know, we actually just brewed it. Uh, we have a new beer. This is like plug time here at the 21st Amendment with Sully. Uh, <laughs> Don't forget the check. <laughs> so we did a couple of, bre of brews of um, at the pub uh, in 12 barrel system of a beer called El Sully, which is a Mexican lager. And I just find myself being drawn to lighter beers right now, maybe because I'm aging and, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm getting some hot fatigue. I mean, like IPAs are ubiquitous, they're not going away. Um, but I am actually a fan of Coors Light. That's every, every brewer has a dirty little secret. And mine is a six pack of Coors Light in cans in the back of my fridge. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to kind of make a beer, not that, but something similar to it. And so I wanted to brew a Mexican lager. And so we've just canned what a beer called El Sully, 
which maybe is why I like it right now because my name's on it. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's pale malt, Vienna malt, flake maize. It's a WLP 940 Mexican lager yeast. It's 17 IBUs. It's Magnum and Northern Brewer. It's a really simple recipe. We put it out in about 23 to 28 days. And uh, it's so easy to drink. It's dangerously drink, easy to drink. So, so I think we're I think we're christening the patio over here is going to be Rancho El Sully. It is Rancho El Sully. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I like that actually. There you go. Another another idea. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> yeah, see, I come to visit and it's it's market research day. Uh, well, and uh, so to be truthful, my and my dirty little secret is uh, I really like chiladas. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like a, a nice Sunday chilada. It's a terrible thing. It's, it's not terrible. I mean, it's really about the family of beer. And the problem is that these beers have been marginalized in our craft beer brewing world because they're perceived to be not great, you know? You remember that craft beer movie that came out years ago uh, that Greg did? Greg uh, Cook from... Uh, from Stone, mm-hmm. I'm a craft brewer, and like I think, I think I don't think I edited it, but I'm not putting corn in my beer. I'm not putting rice in my beer. Guess what? I'm putting corn in my beer, and, and I'm not, and I'm not afraid to say it now. <laughs> it's coming around. It's coming around. There are judicious, well-made applications for adjuncts of all varieties. Well, you're you're very astute in saying that, sir, with your erudite kind of way. But uh, <laughs> but what it really comes down to I think what he was saying in that video was that it really represented kind of the larger you know the the predatory tactics of those larger breweries right. and what they were putting out there so not so much about the ingredients no but at the same time it's the point of you know use ingredients because you like what they give you not because of an advantage that they give you yeah exactly alright so most unusual beery thing you've ever done that would have to be our marooned on Hog Island oyster stout. I mean, look, the anytime you add a seafood to a beer, there's potential for trouble. <laughs> and the goal, so this is a beer that we did with Hog Island Oyster Company. Uh, we brewed this beer at our pub way back in the day. It was really an excuse to eat oysters and drink beer. And it was like kind of like, I'm going to put my chocolate in your peanut butter kind of experience. And that's what we did. Uh, we, you know, and there's a history of this that Michael Jackson's written about. And, you know, about in England where there's an abundance of oysters and certainly they're not lost on, you know, there's stouts out there. And so we would, you know, collect, we'd eat the oyster meat and we'd collect the brine and the, and the shells, which had a little tendon still left on it. And then the next morning we would, you know, put it in the boil and that's that became the oyster stout. And the idea is that the salinity from the brine as well as maybe some calcium from the shell that precipitates into the beer, uh, that it's part of the of the brewing process and adds a silkiness or mouthfeel to the beer. Um, so we flash forward, uh, we just brewed this beer again called Marooned on Hog Island with our friends up at uh, Hog Island Oyster Company. We use their Sweetwater Oysters. Uh, we actually used oysters in this batch that were live and uh, we put them on our hop dosers here at the brewery and we circulated hot word through them, uh, hot stout word uh, as part of the brewing process and they open up and you know they their essence is Give injected <laughs> essence is injected into the brew and then afterwards uh, we, we open up the hop the baskets and we actually ate the oysters that were cooked essentially in the word. So uh, really interesting uh, beer. I mean, the base beer is an oatmeal stout, but uh, it it's fun to eat and drink. <laughs> now, at this point in time, I want to turn to Denny and say, "See, look, my clam chowder says on that I made you brew. Not that unusual." Uh, no, it was. 
<laughs> well, it's interesting because the idea came to me from Grant Johnson, who used to was the brewer uh, at Marin Brewing Company a long time. He was one of the first brewers I met when I first started working at Triple Rock, and he would homebrew an oyster stout, and he would actually take oysters and dry hop his stout with them, and so and he would give you the bottle, and he would open them like, wow, it smelled like oysters, you know, it tasted like oysters. Ours is that you, it's just so subtle and soft because I don't think that you can package and sell a fishy beer. That no. would be my concern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, and that was like the, the clam chowder saison ended up tasting more like a very silky herbal saison. Yeah, right. With a little bit of brininess to it. So, yeah. And I think that's about the right target level to go for seafood. And I'm, I'm arguing that we need to have a meat bar at like one of these beer festivals where it's the bacon beers, the seafood beers, and everything else. <laughs> meat beers, yeah. Yeah, you know, just to make everybody freak out. I just heard, I just stopped listening after you said bacon. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll be the non-vegan beer festival. All right. Um, Got time for like another one more. Okay. Um, dee, 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 then. All right, so we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll do this one. Uh, what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is either wrong or people worry too much about it? Hot side aeration. Um, I don't even know what that is. Uh, I mean, I know what that, I know it, that's take two. Hot side aeration. It's something that everybody talks about, but I don't think anybody even knows what it is. People are like passionate about uh, hot side aeration, about trying to omit that from, uh, you know, the splashing of, of wort and oxygenating your, your wort. Uh, and others are like, huh, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, uh, jury's out. All right. And then uh, two more, one quick and one a little bit longer. Uh, what is something you wish more people would drink or explore? El Sully. El Sully, absolutely. <laughs> there, thank you, Jenny, for the plug. Um, Sully has a mortgage to pay on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I gotta pay this this f off. <laughs> um, I would, yeah, yeah. Actually, well, I would say I think that uh, I, I think that more people that are into craft beer should start enjoying lighter beers. I mean, I think it's part of the whole, you know, arc of craft beer, you know, the flavor spectrum out there. I think that, you know, people that are such diehard fans of like IPAs, IPAs are everywhere right now. They're getting harder to make because the hops are harder to find. Uh, but I think, you know, Gozas are really popular now. Um, you know, I think uh, Berliner Weisses, uh, Mexican Lagers are certainly making a comeback now. <laughs> If I have anything to do with it, it's going to come back. <laughs> exactly, you heard it here first. I think, yeah, just uh, maybe uh, you know, tiptoe to the lighter side of the spectrum. Right. And then, uh, just so everybody can get to know you, because I think everybody who talks to you is talking about beery stuff. Um, what non-beery thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? I am fascinated by uh, two things. Which I have, which I hope to be doing uh, next year. That's put on my on my bucket list for next year: fly fishing and plain air painting. So that's where you you're outside. Uh, plain air painting is where you are essentially taking your small canvas and you're create you're you're painting your landscape in the moment, um, and you have to do it quickly because you're there, and then you then you leave, and then and then and then. Uh, fly fishing just because I have friends who do it, they've been talking to me about it and I just think it's like one of those things where you get to turn your phone off 
and nobody can call you and you're in the moment. I think, I think what this is saying in general is that I need to get outside more often. <laughs> well, it, sounds, it sounds like fly fishing is meditative and the second one sounds like Bob Ross, Happy Trees, uh, quick meditation. With, without, the, without the magic white and the knife blade, yeah. <laughs> And like you always look at the Bob Ross fans, you're like, he screwed it up, he screwed it up, and then like suddenly it's like, shit, he didn't screw it up. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, anything else you want to you want to say before we leave? Um, yeah, drink beer, but don't take it too seriously, and get outside more often. Awesome. Right on. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. So, hey, this has been uh, Sully, Denny, and Drew at the 21A uh, Brewery in San Leandro. Stop by, have a couple of beers, enjoy the Rancho El Sully. And, <laughs> while, you're, uh, while you're drinking El Sully. Exactly. <laughs> so, but uh, in the meanwhile, yeah, definitely come down to uh, San Leandro starting to get their own little brew scene, and uh, you can have a nice little uh, tour of the area. Absolutely. And as with every episode of Experimental Brewing, it's time for you to ask questions to see if we actually know what we're talking about or if we can fake the answers well enough to sound like we know what we're talking about. Fake, fake, fake. Well, hey, you know, nothing like uh, faking it until you're making it, and I still haven't made it. So question number one for this week comes from Kellen of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, He asked me, uh, or he asked us, I've made a few batches in a row now that, for one reason or another, have not turned out great. Be it infection, bad ingredient selection, or I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. I know exactly why in each case uh, the batch has failed, but it's still pretty discouraging. Now, how do you get yourself out of a homebrew rut? So, I have been in several homebrew ruts over the years, uh, mostly because if you're playing around with strange concepts like I do, that happens. And also sometimes I've just gotten lazy or stupid and and have screwed up batches unintentionally or intentionally. Uh, What I've done to get back into the swing of things, to kind of get out of the rut, and it's going to be kind of funny since we're talking about being in a rut here. What I always find is super helpful to me is to return back to a beer I know very well. So, for instance, go and make one of my milds, go make one of my saisons. Go and make something that I have really great success with and I've had great success with in the past and that I really enjoy. So a perfect example is my springtime in Amarillo recipe, which is a very sort of easy, approachable American-style Saison that uses French Saison yeast but uses Amarillo hops uh, for the the aroma and uh, dry hop addition. And it's a great beer. It's always tasty. So that one, if I'm in a rut, if I've had a, a sort of a string of... Uh, Oops, I'll use that in order to really kind of get myself back into the game because I know what that should taste like and I know I enjoy it. How about you, Denny? Yeah, yeah well, you know, I think that's that's a, a good point because, uh, you know, if you have a success, you might as well go back and repeat it so that uh, you can make yourself feel like you're not a total failure. But I think that Kellen kind of like answered his own question here when he said he knows what he did wrong with all of these. Well, buddy, it's as simple as going back and making that batch and don't do that again. You know, do do it right. You know what you did wrong. Go back. Be meticulous. Take your time and do it right. And when it comes out right, you will say, I'm a freaking hero. 
You know, so yep. it's, it's pretty easy. Now, why, why do I feel like if you were a doctor, you'd be the sort of doctor who would go, hey, doctor, why does it hurt when I, it hurts when I bend my elbow? And you'd be like, well, don't bend your elbow. And, well, because I'm the pragmatic doctor. What can I say? Okay, the next question comes from Leonard Ashcroft of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's where my wife was born, so uh, shout out to Leonard. Leonard has a question for Denny, since he is the quest- the keeper of the batch sparge flame, it seems. Wow, I wonder where I left that thing. Every beer I've entered into comps and to a buddy who does judging has come back dinged for astringency. The only thing that I can think is that since I don't check my pH... That may be a thing driving the flaw in all my beers, so I'm going to get a meter, but my question is this. Is it possible to batch sparge too slowly? When I'm doing my thing, I get my water to temp, I dough in, yada yada, recirculate, then run my word out pretty slowly, probably due to fear of a stuck sparge. Same thing when I sparge it. I think he meant a stuck runoff there that first time. Dump the water in, recirculate, then run out slowly. Can you sparge too slowly, or am I too sleep-deprived and should have stuck with my first instinct that it's more a question of needing to get that meter and a bottle of phosphoric acid? Okay, short answer, yes. That's it. Um, Longer answer, yes, you can sparge too slowly, but that won't cause astringency. It will just cause you to waste your time when you could be doing things like drinking beer or cleaning the bathroom to make your wife happy. Um, Because as we all know that the key to uh, successful brewing is keeping your wife happy. Um, So yeah, you're not getting astringency from running off too slowly. If you haven't gotten a stuck runoff yet, then why are you worried about it, man? You know, um, you're in a situation like paying interest on a debt you don't really owe. You don't know that you're going to get a stuck runoff if you run off more quickly. So do it. I mean, if it does stick, big deal. You know, fix it. Stir up the mash. Blow back in through the the runoff tubing. Lots of things. It's not the end of the world. It's beer. Learn from it. Experiment with it. Find out what works for you. Um, I'll tell you right now that, I mean, I don't know what kind of lettering system you use. Um, I'm still with the uh, the ho- stainless steel hose braid for mine. Um, from the t- For a five and a half gallon batch to get about seven and a half gallons or so into the kettle takes me no more than 15 minutes from the time I start my mash runoff till the time I end my sparge runoff. Now, I could go slower. It would make no difference in, a, in a, astringency. But the bottom line is that I know that that works for me, and I know that after 492 batches, I've never had a stuck runoff. So have a little confidence in yourself there, buddy. Give it a try. See what happens. But in the meantime, rest assured that your astringency, if you really have it, is not being caused by a slow runoff. While I'm I'm ranting about astringency, let me just say that as far as I'm concerned, that is one of the most misdiagnosed flaws in the homebrewing world. Everybody hears about astringency, and so it's like confirmation bias. You start thinking about astringency in beers. Now, if you hear it continually from everybody, yeah, you might have that problem, but don't be so sure. Send us one of your beers, man. Let us taste it. We'll, We'll tell you what we think. Uh, and, uh, yeah, gladly so. You know, hey, free beer. But 
No, to Denny's uh, to Denny's point, uh, I actually, even though I batch sparge, I do sparge slowly, mostly because I'm usually running around doing about fifty things while I'm brewing. So I I do it slowly. I've never picked up astringency in my beer, so uh, you can't really extract uh, tannins from the the grain husk any other way except for via pH. So uh, it could also be a water chemistry thing. Like you have you may have certain minerals in the water. But I would expect that to be a sparge method independent astringency. So yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, astringency. I mean, ninety nine percent of the time is going to be related to your pH. And you have said that you don't check it, you don't do anything to adjust it. Go get yourself a copy of Brunewater, a meter, and uh, some phosphoric or lactic acid. Start uh, paying attention to it, and I bet you the things will turn around for you, Leonard. Your turn, buddy. All right, question number three comes from Uberg33k on Reddit, uh, who says, oh, you can bill me as that pain in the butt from the Immaculate Brewery. Uh, runs his website, immaculatebrewery.com. Uh, he says, what beer concept or concepts have you just noped out on? Like it was something just too gross, weird, out there, even for you to try. Uh, uh. <laughs> That's what I thought he was going to say. Uh, American light lager. <laughs> I yeah, see. That's uh, I see. I see no reason to brew it. So uh, that's probably about the only one I th- can immediately think of that jumps to my mind that uh, that I said no to. Although I'm fairly certain. Uh, oh wait, no. Okay, there have been people who have offered me alternative substances for using in beer. Uh, both uh, cousins of our favorite hops and other things, and all of those I have noped out on because I tend to be uh, singularly focused when it comes to my intoxicants. <laughs> but uh, in terms of concepts, uh, I only really do have one hard and fast rule about things I will not add to beer uh, other than uh, possible sources of pathogens uh, is any of the Allium family. And what I mean by that is garlic, onions, leeks, shallots, etc. And the reason for that is because I don't want to add sulfur to my beer. And the primary characteristic of any of the alliums is sulfur. So no onions in my beers uh, ever. Uh, But yeah, I wouldn't do a diaper pale ale because of uh, pathogen concerns. And I really just won't do a light lager because no. How about you, Denny? Denny's list must be about 20 uh, miles long. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I don't, I just kind of like play it by ear. I mean, I will will say that uh, two days ago, I uh, brewed a Belgian Golden Strong that will end up uh, having matsutake mushrooms added to it, uh, which I know will really gross out a lot of people. And, uh, you know, probably if I hadn't heard Randy Mosher say many years ago uh, that um, mushrooms, uh, he put chanterelle mushrooms into a wee heavy and calls it Nirvana. And, you know, what what can you say? Nirvana is a, pre- a pretty good uh, recommendation. So, you know, things like that give me a little bit of incentive to try it. But on the other hand, uh, going back to Drew's Fluffernutter beer, that's something that... Uh, would never even cross my mind. So you know. seriously, it's peanut butter and vanilla. It's not that weird. 
I, about see, I don't like that. Even you know, in a in a sandwich, you know, it's just not for me. So that's that's mm. what my I base it on. You know, it's just my taste. I'm not saying you shouldn't make it. You just shouldn't make me drink it. All righty, our last question today comes from Nathaniel Senf of Vancouver, B.C. I want to give a shout-out here to Nat. I met him uh, at Hop and Brew School up at YCH Hops last fall. Uh, it was a, a great time, great program, and uh, I'm glad to have him send in a question, even if it's a question like this. Denny, how do you keep your hair so flowing? Okay, now, um, number one, I don't cut it. Uh, when I turned about uh, 50, I decided that uh, my midlife crisis was going to be I would stop getting my hair cut. I didn't want to get a divorce. I couldn't afford a fancy car. Pretty much all that was left to me was growing my hair. Uh, I do give it a, a daily beer rinse, though. And if you believe that, then let's talk about this real estate that I've got. Well, now I do want to—I do want to point out—I I threw this into the mix, you know, even though it's a joke. But this is not the only time this question has been asked. This was asked multiple times so far to the podcast. So people really want your tips about how you keep your hair so fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll put, make a special section of the website for that. How's that? Yes, yes, expect, expect a full video, uh, YouTube treatment, uh, possible animations along with a, ga- a graph. And maybe we'll get the Igors involved to do an experiment, a comparing Denny's hair treatment to other commercial hair treatments to see how their hair fares and whether or not Denny really is maintaining the best hair that he possibly can for the least amount of effort. Don't hold your breath. Okay. <laughs> that That's about enough of this silliness for today, man. Why don't you wrap it up for us? All right. Well, uh, before we head out, we're going to get our quick tip of the week. Beerstone is that ugly brown stain that we see in our kettles and our carboys and our other fermenters, uh, sometimes in your kegs, depending upon what you're doing to them. Uh, and I see a lot of people out there recommending how to clean it. Oh, you know, you just got to throw a lot of caustic attic or, or a lot of PBW or... Or a lot of uh, Craftmeister Brewery wash. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, you're doing it the wrong way. And the reason is basic chemistry. So, calcium oxalate, a.k.a. beer stone, is uh, an organic salt that will bind onto metals and binds proteins and all that that sort of fun stuff. It is already fairly basic. You do not get rid of the salt with a basic cleaner. You get rid of it with an acid. So, if you find yourself facing beer stone, which I guarantee your brew kettle will probably have unless you clean it on a regular basis, the easiest thing in the universe to do is to make yourself an acidic solution. Say, take some citric acid and a bunch of hot water, put that in your beer kettle, let it sit for five minutes. Don't do anything. Just let it sit. Uh, Nice hot acid solution in the bath. Come back, dump out the acid, and you can wipe off the beer stone with a paper towel. And it just peels right off. It's actually a really super satisfying feeling when you watch that happen. So no more like getting in there with harsh cleaners and scrubbing with a scrubby, you know, trying desperately to get rid of it. Just give it a quick five-minute soak with an acidic solution. Boom. Comes right off. It's perfect. That's great, man. Uh, although I admit that I just recently uh, cleaned my kettle, uh, which was had beer stone all over it. And I had uh, amazingly good luck with an overnight soak with the Kraftmeister Alkaline Brewery Wash. 
So yeah, what, what, I, what I guarantee that you probably do, you probably still have beer stone in the kettle. You've just gotten rid of most of the organic matter attached to the salts. And that could, that could be because, again, it was alkaline and not acid. So, Okay, getting back to our brew year's resolutions. Remember, we want to hear what your brew year's resolutions are. What are you intending to do in this upcoming year that uh, you didn't do before that you really should have been doing? Uh, let us know. Write to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. All right, so what did we talk about this week? Well, we looked at everyone's reaction to our news of a potential slowdown in the homebrew industry. Remember, folks, get out there and brew and keep your hobby strong. We looked at the interesting concept of a non-profit brew company trying to foster social responsibility with the opening of Lady Justice Brewing in Denver. We also looked at the broad community that's risen on YouTube with the BrewTube community and how they're coming together after the loss of one of their key members. We did a quick rundown of what we're promising to do this coming year with our brewing, Come check back on us in a year and see if we made it. Heck, check back with us in a year and see if we're still managing to put out the podcast correctly. Then it was to the Bay Area to get ourselves in the middle of a listener tasting. And many thanks to Alex for being a good sport about letting us run with this segment. And then we visited with Mr. Sean O'Sullivan and his new Wonderland of Joy at San Leandro 21st Amendment. And we managed to duck and weave our way through another set of questions without sounding too moronic. I really do love the chance to answer questions, so please send us questions at questions at experimentalbrew.com. And lastly, remember, folks, better living through chemistry. It's a thing. Use acid on your beer stone-laden kettles. Don't use caustic. All right, and what's coming up in the next couple of weeks? Uh, we'll be bringing you more of experiments, and soon the results of the first experiments as we get started on a regular cycle and calendar of experimentation. So stay tuned to be able to find out, does Y-Yeast 1056 taste exactly like White Labs 001, or tasters able to tell them apart? and figure out what we're going to do for our next experiment. I think it's going to be something hop-related. And then we're going to be bringing you more interviews from the Bay Area, including Nick of Yeast Bay, to talk about his take on running a yeast company and what's he, what he wants to bring to the brewing table. Okay, man. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast. Catch all of our latest adventures, writings, and Drew's wackiness by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And God knows where Drew has us these days. Don't forget that if you want to write to each of us individually, you can email us at uh, Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com or Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. So until our next episode, remember, brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. We'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Brew.